Welcome to the British Home Front in the First World War. This series was recorded at the University of St Andrews in June 2018 to accompany a conference marking the contribution by the peoples of the British Isles to the national war effort. In this podcast, we hear from La Joy and Professor Fergal McGarry about the experience of the war in Ireland. My name is Lar Joy. I'm Director of Heritage at Dublin Port. Prior to that, I was Curator of Military History at the National Museum of Ireland. Over the last seven years, I've been heavily involved in the Irish Decade of Commemorations, in the commemorations of World War I, and also the 1916 Rising. My name is Fergal McGarry. I'm a Professor of Irish History at Queen's University, Belfast. My specialism is Irish 20th century history, particularly the Revolutionary Period done a lot of research looking to Easter Rising, and I'm also involved in commemoration of that period. 1914 is the outbreak of World War One, which lasts for four years. But in Ireland, it's one of many wars that happen over a 10-year period. Ireland has the experience of losing many men to World War One, but also has a major urban insurrection in 1916, which we now know as the 1916 Rising, which effectively changes Irish history forever more, not because of the success of the rebellion, but very much the aftermath and a decision by the British government to carry out a series of executions. And out of that, you end up with a changed Ireland in 1917 and 18, which leads to a war of independence, which lasts from 1919 to 1921, a war of independence that leads to a truce to a peace agreement between Great Britain and Ireland. Regrettably, though, that breaks down into a civil war, which lasts from 1922 to 23. Out of all these wars, we do get the creation of a new country, which eventually becomes the Republic of Ireland. But you also then have the splitting of the island between north and south, because six counties in 1920 become a separate entity of Great Britain. Before we think about the impact of the First World War in Ireland, it's important to think about what's happened in the couple of years preceding that, because it's been a really dramatic period in terms of political events. In 1912, the British government bring in a Home Rule Bill, and that's essentially going to create a devolved parliament in Ireland. And that should have really been a crowning achievement of the Irish party, something they'd been looking for for several decades. But that creates a backlash in Ulster. Ulster unionists refuse to accept inclusion in the prospect of a Home Rule Ireland. And crucially, their opposition is not just political, but it's also, in a sense, revolutionary. They form an armed militia, the Ulster Volunteer Force. And the forming of the UVF in turn leads to the forming of the Irish Volunteer Force. And that's the body which some years later will bring about Easter 1916. So really what you see between 1912 to 1914 is a political crisis that creates a militarisation and a radicalisation of Irish politics. On the eve of the First World War, Britain, not just Ireland, but Britain is preoccupied with the Irish question and how it's going to be resolved. Will there be some kind of compromise such as partition over Home Rule? So the immediate impact of the outbreak of the First World War is actually to put the Irish question on ice and it temporarily takes the heat out of Irish politics as both Irish nationalists and Irish unionists declared their support for the British war effort for a variety of reasons, but partly to ensure their political positions as Home Rule is implemented. The crucial thing to bear in mind is that Home Rule is placed on the statute book, but it's not actually implemented until after the war. So a big question needs to be resolved around what the status of Ulster will be. But both mainstream Irish nationalism led by John Redmond's Irish party and mainstream unionism led by Edward Carson and James Craig declared their support for the British war effort. The outbreak of the First World War presents the leader of Irish nationalism, John Redmond, with a dilemma. He's achieved home rule on the statute book, but in order to get home rule implemented, he's got to retain a degree of 
British goodwill. John Redmond personally is a believer in the war. He's also personally someone who believes that a future Ireland can be part of not just the British Empire, but also the UK state. So he's really got no choice but to win round popular national support for the British war effort. At the time, he announces his support for not just Irish volunteers supporting the British war effort, but for actually joining the British army and, and fighting in Europe. That causes a split within nationalism. But interestingly, at that point, September 1914, the vast majority of Irish nationalists back Redmond rather than the more militant, radical Republican minority. Redmond essentially has taken a big gamble with the outbreak of the war, and he's placed a bet on his political future being that of supporting the British war effort. But as events proceed, it turns out to have been quite a risky bet. What he needs is a short, simple war. World War I is a war that goes on and on. And each year, each month that goes by, Redmond is losing his moral authority. His position is eroded by a series of events that he doesn't have much control over. So, for example, he's put in the position of having to support Irish nationalist enlistment in the British Army. But the British Army make that quite difficult for him because they're seen to give preferential treatment to Ulster Unionists and to the Ulster Volunteer Force obviously uh, more politically compatible with the values of the British Army than the Irish volunteers. He's also in a difficult political position because by 1915 you have the formation of a coalition government and that brings into the heart of government unionists who are opposed to home rule. And yet Redmond is saying, well, let's support this war effort and we can get home rule. Redmond also feels he can't take a position in the cabinet because it's Irish nationalist policy not to sit in cabinet because home rule hasn't been achieved at that point. There's also a growing scepticism, I suppose, even in this early stage by 1915 about the war. There's a lot of Irish nationalist goodwill about the war when it breaks out, but that doesn't necessarily extend to Irish nationalists being willing to join up in large numbers. And then by 1915, in terms of what's happening on the actual battlefields, I think Redmond's position is gradually coming under more pressure. The casualty levels that are coming out of the war in 1915 start to impact on Ireland, and this affects the recruitment People just have to look at the lists of dead in the newspapers to realise the casualty rates and there is a reluctance to join up. This is in the context of a very complicated political situation. The British Army has supported very much the establishment of the 36th Ulster Division and has in many ways allowed the Ulster Volunteer Force to transfer its command structure into it. But the 16th Division, which is the Irish Division, is not treated in the same way, is not given the same kind of independence, though large numbers of supporters of Redmond joined the 16th Division. And both the 36th and the 16th Division will go to war in 1916. The 36th Division goes to war at the first day of the Somme. It does very, very well in, in the initial battle at the first part of the day. But in the afternoon, again, very large casualties of about 5,000 people. The 16th Division goes to battle later on in September 1916. And again, within a very short period, it's very large casualties of about 5,000. At the time, a division normally was about 12,000 men. So these are, are very substantial casualties. The 10th Division is the first one to go to war in Gallipoli in August 1915. Today, the battles associated with Gallipoli are very much a, an Australian story, but the number of New Zealanders who died would be the same as the Irish casualty rates. About 3,500 Irishmen died in Gallipoli. When the 10th Division goes to war, it's a very short battle, about two or three weeks, but again, very, very large casualty rates. The Irish Times, which would have been a very unionist, pro-British government paper at the time, writes an editorial in September and talks about an Irish army. This is in the context of what Redmond is creating. He's creating a new country which will have its own army that can support the British army. But between September 
and December 1915, that idea that establishment Ireland has, that we are going to have an independent state with its own army suddenly disappears as the reality of the 1916 rising takes over. Also, you start to see a drop in recruitment levels as people realise that this war is going to be long. And if you do join up, your chances are very, very high that you're going to be killed. I think in political terms, Redmond has set himself up with a very difficult job by becoming a recruiting sergeant for the British Army because his support base, while loyal to him at this point, it's popular nationalism. While there's a long tradition of Irish nationalists serving the British Army, there's also a political tradition of nationalist scepticism about the British Army and about British wars. Within living memory would be nationalist campaigns against the Boer War. So to a certain extent, by encouraging men to enlist, he's going against the grain of popular opinion, and that becomes increasingly an issue. But we do have a tendency to sometimes place too much emphasis on political motives. If you look at what motivated individuals to join up, most historians place much more emphasis on social and economic factors. So if you want to get a sense of why people join, it's useful to ask who joins. And perhaps the most striking difference is the difference between urban and rural rates of enlistment. If you were in Belfast or Dublin, you were four or five times more likely to join than if, say, you were in a very rural county such as Clare. What that suggests, particularly Belfast, which is obviously a city with a lot of sectarian and political tensions, is that maybe the socioeconomic background is the key factor, what kind of job you had, where you worked and so on. If you look at British Army propaganda, enlistment posters and so on, they tend not to appeal that much to explicitly political motives. A lot more appeals to collective pressures, patriotism, the idea of protecting your family, protecting your home. These non-political factors probably deserve a lot of attention in thinking about what motivates the individual to make the decision to join up rather than politics. In Dublin, there was a very large trade dispute in 1913 called the Great Lockout, which was a fight between the employers in Dublin and employees. It failed for the trade unions and the employees, and eventually they had to go back to their jobs. But it did mean a large number of people in Dublin that had suffered in 1913 needed work. There was also a tradition in urban areas of becoming a reservist in the British Army. So when the war does break out, you do see a lot of these reservists being called up. In many ways, they were taking gratuity each year on the assumption that they would never get called up. But very, very quickly, the Royal Dublin Fusiliers recruited heavily in areas where you had dockers and in working class areas of Dublin. That's the first rush to go off to war in those regular battalions. Then the next one is people suffering economically. It's a steady wage, in particular for married men. If you got married, it meant more money. It meant that your wife was going to be looked after. So you do see more married men joining up in that initial period. In middle class areas, there aren't a large number of PALS battalions as you do have in Great Britain. There's only really one, which is the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, a company called D Company of 7th Battalion. And again, we have a large number of men who've just married late 20s, early 30s. When you read their accounts, this is a big adventure. And it's probably the last adventure that they're going to have before they fully settle down into married life. Again, the assumption is, we'll be back in a couple of months, this is going to be good fun, and they experience terrible horrors. So the impact later on in, in 1915 is that a whole strata of middle-class Dublin, the solicitors, the bank clerks, people working in shops, but also the shop owners, suddenly have disappeared and are, are lost. You might expect people who were unemployed or in poorly paid occupations to join in much greater numbers than people in secure occupations. But actually what you find is that some people in secure and well-paid industries, like for example in Belfast, heavy industries or in Dublin, 
are actually inclined to enlist in greater numbers. What that suggests is that a sense of solidarity, of collective pressure, of people making the decision to join together in groups. And that's, of course, what the PALS battalions are trying to attract. But it can also be, for example, pressure from your employers. So some of the big employers in Dublin would have incentivized people to join, either by giving them a sense that they were expected to do their duty or by offering them bonuses and assuring them that their jobs would be there for them. In the past, the way historians approached the Easter Rising was to look at the dramatic events in Ireland as being parallel to what was going on in Europe. And the big shift in historiography over the last couple of decades has been to see how, in many respects, the Easter Rising is a product of the First World War. If you look at the motivations of the very small, unrepresentative group of Republicans who participate in the Easter Rising, their rationale is really in terms of having to make a statement of their Republican intent when England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. So the war presents the context and the rationale and the opportunity for rebellion, even though that rebellion is unlikely to be successful at that moment. It becomes almost like a test of credibility for revolutionaries. If we think about it from the British side, the factor that gives it such an enormous political impact is the way in which they respond to the rebellion. They're very, very heavy-handed. They go in quickly. They use artillery. They level parts of Dublin. They execute 15 leaders very quickly. They arrest several thousand people. They intern them. They bring in military rule. Britain's rationale for that very draconian response is the fact that it's a time of war. So in terms of shaping the thinking of Republicans, but also the response of the British authorities, the Easter Rising should be seen as part of that wider First World War. Conscription is introduced into England in January 1916, but it doesn't apply to Ireland because it's still politically a sensitive issue. Even before the 1916 Rising, recruitment levels into the Irish regiments are starting to plateau. But of course, once the Rising happens, numbers start to decrease even further. And they're really in decline the whole way right up into 1918. Then you start to see an increase in 1918 prior to really the end of the war when things are starting to change and there's probably more enthusiasm to join up. Particularly for Irishmen, the service that they're interested in joining in 1918 is the Royal Air Force. But in 1916, the divisions are starting to suffer and the sense of Irishness is starting to suffer. The 10th Division has been sent off to fight against Bulgaria, a front that has long forgotten, and they stay there for almost two years. On the Western Front, during the battles, which we now call Passchendaele, the Irish do very, very well in early June 1917 in a battle called Messine. But after that, the battles in Passchendaele change, and for the Irish, it's a terrible experience both the 36th Division and the 16th Division, which for political reasons it's been decided should now fight side by side. So Ulster Man and Southern Nationalists, by the end of 1917, they don't actually exist as working divisions and they are requiring large influx of English recruits. Normally Roman Catholic English soldiers are recruited in and any Irish soldier in another unit has been moved in. So for the Irish on the Western Front, as you go into 1918, all three divisions are in very bad condition. Over the last 30 to 40 years, there's been a lot of research on the Irish and the British Army. About 200,000 Irishmen served with the British Army. But we also now know through more recent research that Irish immigrants in Australia and in Canada are also joining up in those armies. In the 1840s, the greatest catastrophe that impacted on Irish history is the Great Famine, which lasted over a five-year period from 1845 and leads to the death of about a million people and the emigration of another million. After the famine, Ireland is dramatically changed and emigration now becomes almost a way of life. Another 1.4 million people emigrate up to 1914. In many ways, Liverpool becomes an Irish city. The popular place to go to would be to the United States, but that did cost money. At the time of the famine, the population was over 8 million people. After the famine, it dropped down to 6 million. And then with ongoing immigration, it very quickly goes down to 5 million. 
The other consequence of the famine is that it essentially creates a kind of Irish world abroad. And that proves very important for Republicans in particular. So if you look at the Easter Rising, the money for that, a lot of the planning, the contacts, even the links with Germany went through Irish Republicans in America. When America joins the war in 1917, you have large communities in Chicago and New York and Boston who want to prove themselves good American citizens. They're emigrants to a new world and they want to prove their citizenship. And they join up in very, very large numbers in the US Army. In many ways, that's what Redmond is doing back home. He's trying to prove that Ireland could be loyal to the British Empire. So you see regiments like the 69th Fighting Irish Regiment from New York coming to France and going into battle in February 1918. We tend to think of the Easter Rising as the big turning point in terms of Irish politics during the First World War. But perhaps an equally important turning point is the conscription crisis in the spring of 1918. What the conscription crisis also shows is how, again and again, Britain takes decisions that don't really make sense within the Irish political context, but they're demanded by the wider wartime political context within the UK. So Britain is under serious pressure for more troops. Crucially, it's brought in conscription in Britain. So it's politically almost impossible for Britain to try and squeeze more resources out of Britain without bringing in conscription in Ireland. And this is despite the fact that really they're getting very clear advice from senior officials saying, well, you might as well try and recruit Germans as try and conscript the Irish. But it becomes a political necessity. So in the spring of 1918, the British tried to impose conscription. It really gives Republicans who hadn't been hugely popular at Easter 1916, a tremendously powerful cause because it taps into a wider nationalist anxiety about being conscripted, about dying in the First World War. It's also seen as fundamentally unjust in terms of the political context in which it's happening because Irish people don't feel that they're fighting for the survival of their nation. Conscription is really the final collapse of the Irish party's support of collaborating with Britain to achieve political successes. And it gives the Republicans a hugely popular and emotive political issue and sees them essentially become a mass movement on the verge of being able to present a revolutionary threat to the British state in Ireland. What's amazing about the period of April to May 1918 is in a very short period, about six weeks, Irish history in many ways changes. John Redmond, the leader of the Irish party, dies and creates a vacuum within his own party. At the same time, the British government decides to introduce conscription, which creates a, a huge crisis in Ireland. Irish Republicans have all been released from prison. They were in prison for maybe nine months. And this galvanizes them. There's a meeting in the Mansion House in Dublin. This party, which people knew little about, called Sinn Féin, now has a new leader called Eamon de Valera, who had fought in the 1916 Rising. And at this meeting, you start to see change occurring in the pecking order of Irish politics, where the Republicans rise in their importance. And the Irish party, the old-fashioned nationalists, are losing their way. They've lost their leader. At the end of that meeting, a decision is made that they will go and talk to the Irish Catholic Church, to the hierarchy, to see if they can get their approval. And by getting the church approval, that changes everything. You're now seeing a church supporting Republicans, not happily supporting Republicans. And then a few days later, in an organised conspiracy called the German Plot, all those Republican politicians are accused of being involved supporting Germany and are all then rounded up and sent off to jail. So in that spring of 1918, in the chaos of World War I, everything suddenly changes in a very, very short period. For the Republicans to really bring change to Ireland, they needed a crisis and the British government handed them a crisis.
What we're also beginning to see in this period of 1917 to 1918 is the first very clear evidence that nationalist public opinion is changing and it's shifting from support for constitutional nationalism for a peaceful method of politics which will accept home rule, really just a devolved parliament with quite minimal powers towards republicanism. That reflects in a sense how the First World War is reshaping politics internationally. If you go back to 1914, home rule seems a reasonable settlement, but home rule is an imperial settlement. It's a very modest settlement. By the time you're getting to 1918, we've had the Russian Revolution, the empires are clearly beginning to collapse. And the idea in particular of self-determination becomes very important, that nations have a right to be independent if they express that through a clear political preference at elections. The post-war election of November, December 1918 is an interesting election. There's a much enlarged electorate. All men can vote. A significant number of women get to vote. But crucially, it's a post-war election. If you look at Sinn Féin's election manifesto, what they're really asking the Irish public for is a mandate to go to the Paris Peace Conference and to achieve a republic. Apart from Ulster, where Ulster unionists perform very well, Sinn Féin sweep aside the Irish party. Looking at the economy of Ireland during World War I, Ireland is very much an agricultural country in the south and then has a very heavy industrial part in the north and in the cities of Dublin and Cork. Agriculturally, farmers do well out of the war, providing foodstuff to Great Britain, but also providing large numbers of horses for the, the cavalry units in the war. In the cities, things improve the working class families. Work becomes more stable, more regular, especially in Belfast with shipbuilding and the armaments industry. Factories are introduced into Dublin on a very small scale, but again, led by John Redmond and the Irish Party, they want to show that they are willing in these cities to build and make weapons for the British Army. These factories normally employ local women in the cities. So there's a huge change for women in Dublin due to the war effort. And of course, a lot of them would have had family or husbands who were away at the war. Middle class families in Dublin very much lean towards John Redmond and the Irish Party or to the Unionist Party in supporting them and the cause of the war. So they're inclined to help in many ways because they have loved ones fighting in the war. The First World War gives us a set of really powerful myths that evolved very quickly in the aftermath of the First World War. 1916 really becomes central to the formation, not just of independent Ireland, but also of the Northern Irish state. And in a sense, we've got two competing myths. For Republicans, it's the idea that the sacrifice at Easter is what wins Irish freedom. It begins the fight that culminates in independence and eventually, after a long time, with the achievement of an Irish Republic. But the numbers of people involved in Easter Rising were really small. You're probably looking at about 2,000 men, whereas we know about 200,000 Irish men, albeit of different backgrounds, were fighting the First World War. For Ulster, there's a different kind of myth, and it's also about a blood sacrifice, but it's a blood sacrifice at the Somme. The idea is that the death of those men in the service of Britain proves Ulster's loyalty, and it makes the case for why Ulster's safety had to be preserved from being placed into a united Ireland. The blood sacrifice of 1916 become powerful myths, both for the Northern Irish state and for the Irish state. Where does it leave the vast number of Catholic nationalist servicemen who went off to fight abroad? To a certain extent, they leave with goodwill and as heroes in 1914 and 1915, but a lot of them return in 1918 and 1919, positioned by Republicans as maybe fools, dupes, or even the kind of worst case scenarios, traitors. And while they do in many practical ways integrate back into everyday life, and indeed many of them, people like Tom Barry, who fought in Mesopotamia, actually joined the IRA, there is an awkwardness around the memory of nationalist serving in the First World War. And really, it's not until the 1980s that you begin to get their historical experiences revisited and reclaimed. Strikingly, I think this is something that's evolving 
as the peace process is evolving in Northern Ireland. And you have even Republicans, such as the Lord Mayor in Belfast, participating by the 1990s in ceremonies to mark, often in their cases, their grandfather's involvement in the First World War. So you begin to get a much more nuanced, much more complex retrieval of a lost historical memory a long time after the original events. La Joy and Professor Fergal McGarry on the experience of the war in Ireland. You have been listening to the British Home Front in the First World War. The podcast series was made possible thanks to the generosity of John Cawthorne and the 1926 Foundation. The conference was supported by the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport and the Scottish Government. It was a Chrome Radio production for the University of St Andrews, with music by the pipes and drums of the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards. The producer was Katrina Oliphant, with sound design by Chris Sharp. The series editor was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn. In our next podcast, we hear from Professor Adrian Gregory on religion during the First World War.